Hello and good morning, everybody. Hi. What's going on, man? Can't complain. How are you? Well, if you could complain, what would you complain about? <laughs> well, how much time do you have? Right. Yeah. Hey, I got to tell you something, Max. This I, I'm here in Charlotte. This is this is right here in our backyard. Uh, the, this story, and I was shocked that, because I didn't know the story, but now I know more of it. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it is. It's funny. I think in today's news cycle, I sort of convinced myself I can't be shocked by anything. And then uh, when I was investigating the story, it was sort of shock after shock. Yeah. And, and you have to look beyond the headlines. In other words, you have to go to page six. You have to go to page seven or eight because it's going to be buried somewhere. Go find it. Absolutely. But isn't that why we depend on people like yourself, Max? Because journalism has taken on a whole new level of play these days with books such as this. Definitely. I mean, and, you know, we're talking about the difference between headlines and the real story. When this headline came out, the police claimed they'd only found 44,000 Xanax pills at the College of Charleston. And then I started talking to a defense lawyer who let it slip. They had found closer to three million. Oh. And so, you know, I think that's often the case. There's often way more sort of behind the headlines. And it takes a lot of of work and a lot of resources really to sort of figure that out. Do you think that this took place at the College of Charleston because that's a medical university? You know, that's a, that's funny. No one's asked that, but I actually do think there was some tie-in with the, the medical students there. Um, but I think it's more the location of Charleston. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not far from I-95, which they call the cocaine highway connecting Miami and New York. It's obviously one of the biggest centers for bachelorette parties and <laughs> imaginable. <laughs> you have King Street. Um, it's a port city. So a lot of stuff was coming in from China via the dark web, you know, into the ports. And then also um, you have just a pretty insane amount of wealth coming down yeah, from places do. like Greenwich, Connecticut, Westchester, um, wealthy New England suburbs. Then you have kids from these old Southern families. And then to top it all off, you have a really strong fraternity system, which is what all these drugs were moving through. Well, and the way I look at it as well, there's a lot of room in that Charleston area where you can hide stuff because there's a lot of open country. Definitely. A lot of open country. You know, it's kind of a smuggler's paradise. You have all those kind of wetlands. And mm -hmm. then also you just have all these, you know, multi hundred year old, multi million dollar houses all walking distance from each other. The only policeman nearby is a campus cop with a, a flashlight <laughs> and, a you know, a Segway. And so, yeah, I mean, it's kind of the dream place to start a, a drug ring like this. But of course, what I found is that this drug ring really stretched to fraternity houses around the South and ultimately around the country. And so in another way, just the fraternity system generally is a pretty great setup for running a, a transnational multi-million dollar drug ring. I can't imagine what you went through mentally and creatively every time that you found something new about this story. Definitely. I mean, there, there were so many twists and, you know, there, there was a murder, student deaths and, you know, all sorts of betrayals and, um, and, you know, at first it feels like, oh, this is a juicy true crime story or something. But then, you know, you actually start to talk to parents who lost their sons mm. and, you know, there's nothing salacious or, or fun about it. It's it's really it's obviously, you know, the heaviest thing in life is talking to a parent who's lost lost a kid. Wow. You sat down with 120 people on this and it just amazes me how many people were so willing to share. Yeah, I mean, it definitely took time, right? You know, at, at first, no one wanted to talk. Mm. Um, and then it kind of takes on a momentum of its own. I think once people start to think, okay, well, this is happening, 
they think, well, I want to give my perspective then. I don't want other people just talking about me. And then also, you know, once you get your hands on the police files and court documents and there's, you know, thousands of pages of that stuff, people start to go, okay, well, you know, the story's getting out there, so might as well kind of tell what I know. The book we're talking about is Among the Bros. Um, one of the things that you bring up that kind of haunted me, and it makes me kind of more aware of what really goes on, and that is, is that many of those that are involved were not prosecuted. Yeah, so, you know, if you look at this ring, and like I said, it's close to 3 million Xanax pills. It was also a few dozen pounds of weed, a few pounds of cocaine, assault rifles, a grenade launcher, Jeez. really major stuff. Um, of the guys in this ring, really only one is in prison right now and a few others did you know kind of one or two year terms most of them weren't charged at all if you got probation and if you look at the fraternities the two main fraternities involved one got kicked off campus for four years came back the other never never left campus at all and you can go on their instagrams now they're both public and they're posting videos from pretty pretty wild parties wow was it the money thing that uh, protected them yeah, I mean, I think that's a lot of it. You know, uh, one stat I found is that 75% of all money given to U.S. universities is Greek life alumni. And that's 2% of the population, 75% of the money. It gives you a sense of just how much wealth is concentrated in, in this very small system. Did anything shock you? Or is this just something you're going, oh, my God, I mean, it can't get any worse than it, than it already is, but it does. You know, I, I think the one thing that shocked me is you sort of get used to the sort of you know, consequence of a world without consequences. You see people just get away with a DUI, then get away with a simple possession, then get away with this, you know, possession with intent to distribute, and it just keeps growing and growing. But I think in the back of your head, you think, yeah, they can get away with a lot, but at some point, you know, they're going to run into a wall. And I think what's kind of shocking is that that wall never came, or any mm -hmm. wall that they ran into, they just could drive right through. Um, and yeah, I, I think <laughs> that does kind of surprise me because it's, you know, it's, even if, you know, I grew up in this world, I was in a fraternity, I'm from the South, but like, it does kind of go against what you learn in Sunday school a little bit. <laughs> Man, you were facing some serious walls, though. First of all, we're talking about drugs, and then we're talking about a lot of money. When that involves other people's emotions, do, do you find fear in any of this? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there, there, were, there were plenty of people who didn't want this story to come out. Um, I think, you know, a lot of the guys in that world, it's more fear of a lawsuit or something yeah. than fear of violence and that's why you know you do like a really in-depth legal read and really in-depth fact checking and everything has to be corroborated by multiple sources but yeah there's definitely fear and anxiety with doing something like this but at the same time so many guys from this bubble and you know this is why i wrote the book to begin with had had their lives affected by this the insane amount of xanax running through these parties it's an incredibly addictive drug. It's one of two drugs you can die of withdrawals. Yep. And so, so many people wanted to talk because even if they feel defensive of the system, they also have lost enough friends to know that, you know, something needs to change. I'd like to know how they laundered the money because I know what happens. When you go into a grocery store to get a, a money order or even Western Union, you hit that $3,000 mark, you're filling out the paper. And that means the government <laughs> is now involved. So I would like to know how they, they laundered this money. So it's a few things. I mean, one, there were guys, and they talked about this on some of the wire phone calls, they were wiring money through the fraternity slush funds. So, oh. you know, you can have it written down as a donation or, you know, it's going toward a party or something. But it's a very loose, loosely regulated system. And these chapters weren't, weren't like this, but at the highest end, you know, they're fraternities with million-dollar-a-year social budgets. 
And so there's just so much cash moving around, kind of churning. But then the other thing is one of the guys in this ring um, was the first ever American to have his Bitcoin seized by the federal government. Oh, my God. So, you know, there's some early, early adapters. Wow. Was it easy to get in to get more information from the DEA, the FBI, and even the Postal Service? No, you know, they were they were not uh, okay. that quick to talk. It took a few years. Um, but they they do keep very as the DEA specifically keeps very good documentation. Um, and so once I started getting a hold of their sort of interview records, I was stunned by, you know, how much they kind of had. Um, but yeah, what's funny that the Postal Service was involved, something a DEA agent told me is that the U.S. Postal Service is the biggest drug trafficker yep. in the world <laughs> um, because it's just so easy to mail drugs and it's, you know, they're so underfunded. They have no hope of regulating everything that's moving through the mail. And also, I've had drug dealers tell me they do it in the mail because it's a felony to open someone else's mail. So they feel protected compared to other other courier methods. Those little geniuses. Exactly. <laughs> so you said years. So how many? How long did you put your life into this project? You know, I think it came out to a little over four years. Wow. Um, and, you know, it's about half reporting, maybe a little over half, and then the other half writing and editing. Um, but... You know, to do something like it was it was something like 200 interviews, 120 sources, like it, a lot of the legwork is even just finding the people. Right. Yeah. When you're when you're starting out. So that was an embarrassing amount of time was even just trying to find who to email. Wow. So where can people find more information about you, Max, give you some love and really, really start following you as a journalist? Yeah. So just you can go to my website, max marshallcom my emails on there feel free to reach out and then among the bros is available really anywhere you can get it um you know amazon audible uh barnes and noble and especially local bookstores i love it man you got to come back to the show anytime in the future the door is always going to be open for you dude thank you so much yeah, i really enjoyed this you'd be brilliant okay all right thanks have a, have a great one